Hey everyone, welcome to Reformed Podmatics, hosted by the pastors of Almond Valley Christian Reformed Church in Ripon, California. It's Pastor Mark Van Dyke and Pastor Zach Dewey, and this podcast exists to promote the vibrant, biblical, and historically informed face of Reformed theology, both in our context and beyond. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode nine of Reform Podmatics. I am Pastor Mark. And I'm Pastor Zach. And today we are continuing what we kind of began last week on episode eight, tackling this huge topic of Reformed theology. What does it mean <laughs> to be Reformed? What are the core tenets and beliefs of a Reformed person, a Reformed congregation, a Reformed denomination. And we thought after we were done with that conversation that it had gone fairly well, except we <laughs> just realized that there's a lot that we didn't cover. And so yeah. today we're going to pick up some of the the other topics and tie up some of the loose ends that we feel like were there after our last conversation. And we're probably not even going to get there in terms of an exhaustive yeah, no uh, description or explanation of um, even some of the things that we missed. And so uh, we are going to jump right into um, some of the, the things that the Reformed Church struggles with and uh, I'll look hmm. a little bit of why those struggles are there, how we see the struggles of the Reformed Church being um, relieved or even solved, and... Um, and hopefully then also get into a conversation about how Reformed Christians engage in uh, culture and in things like politics and kind of in the real world. Where does the Reformed Church meet the real world? Where do hmm. the the tires meet the road, you yeah. might say, um, in terms of Reformed theology? And so, uh, again, first topic that we're going to cover is thinking about some struggles within. Last episode, hmm. we thought a little bit about some cultural influences that would at times make it difficult for Reformed theology to thrive and spread. Right. Uh, things like individualism, scientism, scientism, anti-intellectualism, yep. and uh, those are cultural forces that are often outside the Reformed Church that would make people a little bit hesitant mm. to um, uh, to embrace all of this, uh, what we find to be biblical good theology. Um, and now we're going to look a little bit more at what's happening within the Reformed Church that could threaten our unity or threaten our uh, spiritual productivity and our devotion to what God wants us to be devoted to. Yeah, so one of the first questions is we were looking last time at the breadth of the Reformed tradition. We could think about the ecclesiology of Reformed theology. The, the ecclesiology means the theology of the Church, particularly how Reformed people understand their own tradition. Sort of, where do we draw the lines with the Reformed tradition? Who who gets to be called Reformed? <laughs> who doesn't get to be called Reformed? Uh, how, how tight is the circle of the Reformed tradition, or how broad is the circle of the Reformed tradition? That's kind of an interesting question, because there's probably a lot of people in the Reformed Church, I'm thinking a lot of Christian Reformed people, who don't want to be called reformed, <laughs> yeah. and uh, and they would push that title away. These are often those of a more 
non-denominational persuasion who mm. um, find themselves pastoring uh, Reformed churches and don't really want that moniker applied to them because it, it could have some baggage for people in our culture, although I would say a, a term like Calvinist would have a lot more baggage than Reformed yeah. probably would. But anyways, um, we've been thinking, how do we draw those lines of what is a Reformed congregation? What is Reformed theology? We talked last time again about the five points of Calvinism and the five solas, um, but uh, what would be another one that you can think of as a helpful distinctive of being Reformed that would help us know who's who's in? Yeah, say. one that's often brought up it, that I see really in groups online, in different forums and different Facebook groups that debate and talk about Reformed theology is the issue of, of baptism. Uh, and so often the argument is made that if you hold to uh, credo-baptism or the belief of believer's baptism or only adults who, or, or uh, kids who can at least understand the basics of the gospel can get baptized, uh, if you hold to that, then you're not truly reformed. And so there seems to be a want, uh, a desire to constrict the definition of mm. reformed theology only to those whose covenantal theology leads to saying that, that infants can and should be baptized. Uh, and so we should discuss this a little bit and, and, and maybe toss it around. Where do you stand on that one particularly, Mark? Uh, well, last time we talked about how a Reformed person is confessional. Hmm. And so certainly to be Christian Reformed and to hold to the confessions that we do, which is the Heidelberg Catechism, it says infants should be baptized. Mm-hmm. And... Um, they are no less members of God's covenant than adults are. That's right there in the catechism. And mm-hmm. so they should be baptized. It's not just that they um, would have the option to be baptized, mm-hmm. but if we truly hold to the teaching of the Heidelberg Catechism, which I think we should in the Christian Reformed Church and yeah. in any denomination that um, values it and would call themselves Reformed and would have that as one of their belief statements, then we should do what is in line with that belief statement, which is, of course, not just because it's there in the catechism, but we believe it's a biblical teaching that God is a covenant-keeping, a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God, and uh, that covenant applies not only to adults, but that covenant applies to uh, children being raised in covenant families. Hmm. So then let's get a little bit more particular then. (laughs) Is... Charles Spurgeon reformed. I think last time you did drop the comment that he preached very reformed sermons. So I think we maybe we see your answer a little bit there. Well, yeah, it's tough. And Martin Lloyd Jones. So really, my two of my favorite preachers would be Credo Baptists, Um, and certainly I I do think those men emphasized covenant theology. Mm-hmm. And they absolutely taught the five points, the doctrines of grace. Um, they would have valued the teaching of the Heidelberg Catechism generally, I would say, although I don't yeah. know if I've heard much of reference to um, things like Westminster or Heidelberg from either minister. Hmm. Um, but um, I don't know. I, don't, I, I would say that generally they would, <laughs> uh, would teach Reformed theology, 
but in that sense, certainly they wouldn't be continental reformed yeah. um, or Presbyterian. Yeah. Um, this this question gets at that breadth. Yeah. Where where can we draw the lines? Uh, there was a book ri- written recently of I think it was four different theologians, including Scott Clark f- from Westminster, California, and D.G. Hart from Hillsdale College, and they the book is on this very question: who who gets mm-hmm. to be sort of reformed? Um, and I've seen lots of debates over the years whether John Piper or John MacArthur are reformed for the same kinds of reasons uh, for the yeah right um i think that the argument could be made that more, a little bit better that piper and spurgeon are classically reformed than a john macarthur mm. for reasons that we can get into it would mm-hmm. deal largely with uh macarthur's i think political views which we'll get into yeah. here in a bit his understanding of the relations between church and state yeah, but his ecclesiology but yeah. piper and spurgeon um were at least confessional in the sense that I think Spurgeon officially would have held to the London Baptist mm-hmm. Confession, mm-hmm. which was a sort of revision of the Baptists from the Westminster Standards. Yeah. So in, it's almost exactly the same in many ways, but there are key parts of the London Baptist Confession uh, that were uh, edited to be more acceptable to Baptists, those with who believe that only believers should be baptized. Um, so if you compare the two, you could do a parallel of the two mm. confessions, and it's, it's almost exactly word for word, except for a few crucial places. <laughs> um, so at least in that sense, I think Spurgeon was confessional, mm. and then you could say, well, if he's confessional and he holds to a Reformed confession, then he must be Reformed. But I think when it comes down to it, and maybe this is this is a punt, but... <laughs> I personally don't don't really care too much if if Spurgeon was or wasn't reformed. It's interesting in theory to 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 discuss because it helps us to get at the question of well, there is a boundary somewhere of yeah. what reformed theology is and what it isn't. Yeah. Um, but whether or not Baptists are included in this reformed circle, uh, that's not for me to decide personally. Is that's how I feel. Yeah, it's a little bit and putting that into practice today. It's a question of could a credo-baptist join a Christian Reformed church? And Hmm. certainly we would love if any person uh, joined our church who who generally affirms the teaching of our church and our confessions. Mm -hmm. Um, It does start to get a little bit complicated in terms of who would be allowed to preach Mm-hmm. Uh, who would be considered an elder or yeah, a, a spiritual leader in the church because <coughs> because those leaders are called upon to mm-hmm. sign the form of subscription, yeah. which uh, says that we are in agreement with something like the Heidelberg Catechism, which yeah, says that you won't, infants ought to be baptized. Yeah, and that you won't push against it or teach against yeah. it. Yeah, and so... It's a, it's a little bit like that question in that we would we would welcome somebody who struggled with certain points of doctrine, um, different understandings of covenant theology, uh, I think that we would welcome them into our church, and that would be a great benefit to us. Um, Hmm. But hopefully that would change over time, and they would start to understand things in um, a fuller way and really embrace all of the teaching of the three forms of unity. 
Um, but uh, I, I would say that <laughs> certainly such a person could benefit our congregation and be a blessing to us, and we could be a blessing to them, much right. like I appreciate the sermons of Spurgeon and Lloyd-Jones. Yeah, and Piper. Yeah. Those, those are great men of God who, for Pipe, for me personally, Piper has been yeah. and remains to be one of the most important people in my thinking in his God-centeredness, his love and joy for God. So regardless of whether or not the man is perfectly reformed in all of his credentials, I I love his teaching yeah. um, and benefit a lot from it personally. And so I guess there's a sort of, I, I have a sense of ecumenicity in, or of yeah. openness in yeah. my in my Reformed camp, what what it means to be Reformed. Another one that's interesting, which we don't have to get into, is whether Anglicans can be Reformed uh, or, or, or opening it up more, Congregationalists or independent congregations, or maybe even in modern uh, in our modern context, whether Acts 29, non-denominational churches who hold to Calvinism, mm-hmm. whether they are Reformed. Um, I think one of the ironies in this conversation is that some of these people who uh, we're trying to nitpick a little bit mm-hmm. would definitely be proclaiming the truth of God mm-hmm. in a Calvinistic mm-hmm. Reformed way in the most general sense, of course, and talking about salvation as something God does, to use a term from last episode, in a monergistic way. Mm-hmm. So you have Spurgeon and Lloyd-Jones and Piper... And uh, many of these Acts 29 pastors Mm -hmm. who are, they love Reformed theology, and they want their congregations and the people who listen to them to to have a full, robust understanding of the glory of God. They are theocentric in the greatest sense. And so uh, to me, those are the the overarching issues um, is the Mm -hmm. way that God is talked about and the way that salvation is communicated. It is the work of God. It is by pure grace. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's, that's a little bit of why I would lean in the ecumenical direction, because I would say that there are on the opposite side, those in our own Christian reform denomination who don't elevate the theocentric view of God or the mm-hmm. um, monergistic mm-hmm. way of salvation, yeah. um, the ordo salutis in a, in a sort of monergistic way. Yeah. Um, but they would baptize infants, right? And mm-hmm. they would do a lot of these things that, that seem to be like checking the right boxes. Right. Um, yeah, the great irony there then is yeah. that even these quote-unquote non-reformed, non-denominational right. sorts of leaders and thinkers, authors, pastors, are in some ways much more reformed than those who are within historically reformed and confessional denominations. Yeah, and and so I, every once in a while uh, it will seem to me, I, I don't have a particular person in mind when I say this, but mm-hmm. in hearing ordination exams for ministers, by the way, or, or, as an example, um, they would say the right things, like they would... I, I think that the word covenant has almost become a password to ordination in the Christian Reformed Church, mm. where if somebody just drops that term <laughs> and they know that there's a covenant in Genesis 12 and that there's mm-hmm. a covenant in the no, there's the Noahic covenant and right. the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant in 1 Samuel, and if they just know those things, oh, then they're Reformed. 
Yeah. It's like, oh, then they're, they're, they'd be a good Christian Reformed pastor if they know those scripture references. And like that, that's a little bit of why I push back and I say, well, I don't know if that person is really theocentric. I don't know if, yeah. they, like, I don't know if they're truly monergistic in their understanding yeah. of salvation because they know about God's covenants. Um, yeah. Another one would be the authority of Scripture and the sovereignty of God, that those are passwords that are used mm-hmm. and often open to some pretty loose interpretations, yeah. um, like covenant kind of can be as well. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and so in Christian Reformed pulpits, you would find Arminianism and um, synergistic semi-Pelagianism yeah. and... But they they said the passwords to get through the hoops because all of a sudden we've just turned it into it's about covenant, the authority of scripture, mm-hmm. and the author- and the sovereignty of God. And if you say those right things, then you're reformed. Yeah, that's a little bit of what it's turned into in our context. And I'm sure even in in our own congregation or denomination, really, you would find people who probably, without knowing it, were holding to a functionally dispensational view of yeah. Scripture. Yeah, they absolutely. may have the right word. They may know covenant is a big deal, the idea of yeah. the covenant um, and how God works seamlessly with His people through the covenants. Mm-hmm. And it's not these disjointed dispensations of plan B and C and D. Uh, like He's giving up on previous plans and starting new ones. But that is often the broadly evangelical approach, and that is how some people, even in the Reformed congregations may may think yeah and so uh that's maybe a loose way of getting around the question that there are those who are on the fringe who could be extremely helpful to (laughs) a reformed person's understanding of salvation and how god is working in the world and there would be those who would be kind of within the camp who we should be a little bit careful of in examining like the Acts 17 berean According to Scripture, is is what this person saying true and helpful and you know useful for the building of my faith? Um, the next struggle from within is maybe a little bit related to that, but it's Definitely. it's getting uh, uh, more specific. Is this struggle we have within the Christian Reformed Church and maybe even more so in the Presbyterian Reformed Church mm. of what is called sectarianism? This is mm. the idea that we have. Uh, our guy, and he's our guy, and anybody who disagrees with our guy is outside of not just mm. the Reformed camp, but maybe even Christianity altogether. You see this a yeah. lot with people, MacArthurites, people who really yeah. love John MacArthur. Um, you see it less so, I would say, in the Christian Reformed Church, because um, we've generally never had a a pope-type figure in Mm -hmm. our denomination. Um, There have been powerful leaders and influential thinkers in the Christian Reformed Church, but Mm -hmm. um, it's less likely today that you would find this in the CRC than you would, particularly in something like the PCA, where Tim Keller, I've even heard called the the Pope of church planting and the PCA and things (laughs) like that. So there's this penchant towards sectarianism in the broader Reformed Church that is certainly a threat to unity, and mm. uh, it's a threat to our witness because um, it, it it's divisive. Yeah. It's divisive in nature. It's this tendency to draw the circle really, really tightly right. um, and to hold up whatever is within that circle as the 
really the only truly biblical position or whatever it may be. And so, and so then to, to disagree with that position or to disagree with your guru leader, your chosen uh, prophet, Moses or prophet, (laughs) um, then to disagree with him is to disagree really with the Bible and it's to then be, you're an infidel. You are, you are functionally a heretic at that point. And so then you, (laughs) you are basically, cutting everyone out of your group and that you're you're standing by your yourself and so mm. you've alienated yourself and you're the only true christian this this is a tendency that has been seen in church history a lot over the millennia uh, a lot over the, especially the last couple hundred years particularly in america uh, thinking back to our episode on the revivals out of the Second Great Awakening in mm. particular, there was a lot of brand new groups who mm-hmm. saw themselves as the restored true church, and everybody else uh, was was not uh, not up to snuff, as so, so to speak, um, that nobody was good enough. And so this is true, of, especially of the Mormons, but also with yeah. the Church of Christ, in particular, uh, restorationist, fundamentalist, Baptist groups, uh, that would pop up across the frontier. Mm. And so there's this tendency in in our hearts, and even in the Reformed tradition, to have a very constricting definition of what it means to be Reformed and what it means to be Christian. Yeah, and one of the safeguards against that that I think has helped in the Christian Reformed Church is to have a, a more of a Reformed ecclesiology and polity. And so mm. the local council is really, truly an authority in the local church. And people who would come into a Christian Reformed church from a non-denominational church, we talked about this earlier in the role of the Reformed pastor, um, they would be surprised at how functional the authority of the elders is over me as the pastor, over us as as ministers, because... (laughs) Um, it truly is there, and I embrace it. I love it. I am not the CEO of this church. Yeah, and that's a good um, point. and so when you have that as essentially kind of saying we are a council-led church far more than we are a staff-led church, mm-hmm. you're starting to safeguard yourself against that prophetic understanding of he's the the guru that mm-hmm. I've just got to listen to. He's the one at the top of the triangle. He's the, the Steve Jobs and everything yeah. he says and, goes. And what he says I should do. And so you, you don't have ministers creeping up in the Christian Reformed Church, and I don't think they're being kept down necessarily by a mm-hmm. council, but they, they are certainly in their place in ministering to the local congregation instead of, well, now I've built this big church, and so then the church down the street and the church across the state and the church across the country should now come and listen to me too. Mm-hmm. And so there's that stop gap that's kind of already there with local councils being functionally over the the local minister, which is a good thing. Yeah, um, definitely. But uh, we see this a lot. So Zach and I are <laughs> occasionally dabbling into the world of social media and there are different... Um, hmm. Facebook groups, for example, who will essentially bicker about the different <laughs> viewpoints of different theologians and are you a Vantillian presuppositionalist <laughs> or are you more of a, uh, you know, uh, just just trying to nail down exactly um, what we think about every issue from every 
um, theologian's perspective. And really, we want to we, we want to say that's a danger in the Reformed Church. Yeah, it goes back to our mystery episode. Yeah, and it's related to intellectualism. It's a worship of the intellect, I would say, at a certain point. Like, oh, Van Til, he just got it. He just understood everything. And uh, hopefully when when Zach or I talk about Herman Bavink or when I talk about uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones or Charles Spurgeon, mm-hmm. we are not saying these men are infallible we're not even saying that they're the only preacher anybody should listen to. Yeah, um, certainly not. But we're trying to say these men have really impacted us in a positive way and believe their their fidelity to the scriptures and to reform theology is unquestioned. So the the reason that we are called to address this is 1 Corinthians 3. Yeah. Which it's a good place uh, to turn. It deals with this sectarianism head on with a a scalpel. Um and so you have in 1 Corinthians 3, starting at verse 5, when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? And it's saying, they are mere men. Um, what, after all, is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants through, through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, says Paul. Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. And then skipping down to the towards the end of the chapter, Paul continues, So then, no more boasting about men. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. So... Um, the likelihood and tendency for Reformed people to get caught up with their gurus is corrected in Scripture. Mm-hmm. And um, again, I, I did hear a great sermon by Martin Lloyd-Jones on this, where he's saying when people find their, their prophet, they are going to start losing some of the things of Scripture. And even worse, they're going to start mm-hmm. losing some of their identity in Christ uh, because they're saying... I'm a MacArthurite, yeah. or what MacArthur says. And and so when that, even I've been corrected in a, a forum at one point by saying I'm a Calvinist, <laughs> which I thought was a helpful way of maybe using shorthand to tell people what sure. my soteriology is. <laughs> but um, sometimes people can interpret that to say, I'm a Calvinist above being a Christian. And mm-hmm. so we should be careful of that. Yeah, it's much lower than that. I yeah. think with, with this passage also teaches as sort of the the supplementary nature of ministry and how different leaders mm-hmm. can be helpful for different things. Yeah. Paul says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So they each had different parts and roles to play. And in the same way, I think when I when I think of Christian leaders and following leaders, never follow a leader at the extent of of placing him on a, him or her on a pedestal far mm. above every other leader to where they what they have to say is unquestionable. It's good to to have a a broad uh, selection of leaders whom you can choose from um, in, in thinking through your theology and then your, your approach to Christian living um, by listening to different input of different leaders in a, in a sort of complementary way. Yeah, and so another sort of issue that Zach and I perceive, this is, gets a little bit closer to home in the reform, oh, yeah. <laughs> Christian Reform context, is this tendency towards... Neo-Kyperianism, hmm. and so that's a really big word. And anybody who's kind of a lay yeah, person hasn't that. gone to seminary would 
be turned off by hearing such a long uh, title for somebody. But anyways, a Kuyperian is a devotee of the theologian Abraham Kuyper. Now, hmm. Abraham Kuyper was extremely influential at the turn of the 20th century, so right. he lived in the late 1800s and early 1900s, and he was a titanic figure in um, the Dutch world, so yeah. he, he lived in the Netherlands. He was a theologian, a pastor, a statesman. He even became the prime minister of the Netherlands for <laughs> a little while, and um, also very influential in the world of education, particularly encouraging Christian education um, for yeah. church-going people of a, the Netherlands. A true Renaissance man was yeah. Abraham Kuyper. And so people love Abraham Kuyper, and that's good. He's a, a great minister and a, a great statesman, actually, as well. And um, and yet what Kuyper taught has been kind of morphed into a caricature almost of itself. And yeah. so the, the big quote that anybody would know if you have heard the name Abraham Kuyper before, <laughs> is that um, it has to do with the sovereignty of Jesus Christ over all things. And so the yeah. quote is, I, I don't have it written down, but I could almost say it from memory, <laughs> I think, that that there is not a square inch in all of creation over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not say, mine. Yeah. And so this is an echoing of the Great Commission, where Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Mm-hmm. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. He's Lord of Lord and King of Kings. Right, yeah, there, there's certainly that too. And then you have the visions of Revelation where where Jesus is worshipped um, by people from every tribe and nation and language. And so um, Kyperians love that quote, and they, they should love it. It's a great quote about um, the work of Christ and the nature of Christ now in his resurrected glory, being in authority um, mm-hmm. over all things. Uh, however, right. this Kyperianism, like we said, morphs into something else, and where people start to say, I am of Kuiper a little bit more <laughs> than they are, I am of Christ, or I am a Christian who loves the whole of the scriptures, mm-hmm. it can it can turn into what I call a spiritual manifest destiny doctrine, um, hmm. which if you re- would recall our, your American history, manifest destiny is this idea that was uh, very popular in the 1800s in the United States where presidents would say, America is advancing, America hmm. is right and true and good, and so get out of the way. And it's our coming. right to yeah. conquer all of it. Right. It's, it's ours, it's for the taking, Yeah, and so we ought to. The West was, was won, you would say, through manifest destiny doctrines. It's sort of, uh, yeah, we're, we're going, it's ours, and we're taking it. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe that's an oversimplification of manifest destiny. I'd have to read <laughs> up on it a little bit more. Yeah. But, uh, but anyways, Kyperianism can sometimes say that um, of things like media and politics mm-hmm. and... Um, when they say, well, Christ is sovereign over all, he says that the political world is his, what it ends up doing is baptizing things in media and politics and culture that are actually evil and wrong mm. and saying, well, Christ is sovereign over it, and so it must sure. be, it must have a morsel of good in it, um, even if something is just patently anti-biblical and should be called out as sin. 
Yeah, so the whole thing with Kuyperianism, just to back up a little bit, is how how do Christians, and particular, particularly Reformed Christians, engage with the world? Yeah. Do we hermetically seal ourselves off, pull back, start little monastic communities almost, um, and, and not engage with the world um, in sort of a pietistic way. That's often how it's described. Yeah, monastic, that, ascetic. That yeah, being but... a Christian means you're a part of a spiritual community, therefore you should pull back from the rest of the world and sort of form your own counterculture. Or do, you, do we go out into the world seeking to... Uh, maybe it's just save souls and punch tickets for heaven, mm-hmm. um, or do we want to, in any way, affect the culture? Uh, and the the, the Kyperian and the Neo Kyperian answer would be that we should go out into culture and affect it. Mm-hmm. And there's different ways for how this happens. There's different streams of Kyperian thought, which I'll confess. It, it's it's there's so many different answers mm-hmm. to this question that I d- I don't pretend to to even have my own strong opinion either way. Um, but there are, as, as Pastor Mark is mentioning here, some severe weaknesses and problems that we see in the what we would call neo-Kyperian. Or even hyper-Kyperianism. Right. Yeah. Um, so one of the big distinctions for, for the Kyperian system or framework of cultural engagement is uh, the, the, the distinction between common grace and special grace. Um, and so the Kyperian loves to see that in the world, God's grace has been commonly spread to all people. Uh, God sends his reign on the just and the unjust, mm-hmm. says the gospel of Matthew, I believe. I could yeah. be wrong And there. it's in the Old Testament as well. Um, and so they, they want to see that God, God does good things in the world apart from uh, Christian nations and mm. even Christian people cr- outside people, the church. Yeah, yeah, outside the church, good p- people can do good things, and good things happen to them. Uh, and so there's yeah, something there can be scientific discoveries and good right. governments and all yeah. of those things. Yeah, and there's definitely truth to that. And I think traditional Calvinism prior to Kuiper would have taught that. Mm. Um, but there begins to become what I think is a um, a loss of the biblical distinction between loving the world and hating the world. Hmm. And so an example of this comes from 1 John 2.15. You've probably heard the verse before. Do not love the world, says John, or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so some people here would read this and say, we must hate the world, despise the world, and they would have good reason for for doing so. Mm. The Kyperian almost takes John 3.16 to be the paradigm uh, where it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Right, so mm-hmm. God's love of the world is something we need to share, and we need to love the world. The world is good; God created it good. Um, it has been marred by sin, but part of our our calling is to go out and to redeem the world, to uh, affect change in the world. But the program for how this follows is often uh, bogged down by many different mm-hmm. faults of those who hold to it, mm-hmm. uh, and they lose out on what John says in his epistle in 1 John, um, at the extent, or 
to the extent where they only love the world that seems. So yeah. how do we how do we sort of uh, walk along those lines, and how do we navigate that sort of uh, double ditch road here? Yeah, it certainly is one because this is these are script. This is a scriptural doctrine of engagement with the world and love for our neighbor. That's the second tablet of the law. And then there's also the scriptural doctrine of separateness and holiness. So the word holy means to be separate hmm. and yeah. to be called out of the world, just like uh, God did in his covenant with Israel. He made them a nation that was unlike any other nation. And um, one of their greatest sins against God was to say, make us like the nations. We want hmm. a king too. And, um, you know, the... Uh, the two kingdom person really hones in on that. So anyways, uh, maybe to backtrack even a little bit there, <laughs> yeah. uh, Kyperianism would be very uh, strong and emphasizing engagement with the world and uh, participation in things like politics and media mm -hmm. and all of those things. Um, and, and even in secular media. So mm -hmm. um, your, your neo-Kyperian, I would even say hyper-Kyperian, you would find a lot of them saying, Oh, we should watch a rated R movie with lots of sex, violence, drug use, and all that because God could teach us a redeeming thing in it. And so mm -hmm. um, Christ is sovereign over all. He says everything is mine. Yeah. And so we can glean some truth from that. And that, again, that kind of baptizes everything um, mm -hmm. by common grace. Mm -hmm. uh, political sorts of things, too. You, you hear that a little bit less... Um, uh, in a less explicit way, but certainly yeah, political engagement is is a high, high value of the hyper-Kyperian, mm -hmm. whereas the two kingdoms view is is kind of opposite to that in a lot of ways. Two kingdoms view, you could probably figure it out by the name, is the idea that there is the kingdom of God and there is the kingdom of darkness in this mm -hmm. world. And certainly we know there are scripture texts that talk about being called out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Um, and, and we're, we're, we're set free from the tyranny of the devil, according to Heidelberg Catechism question and answer one. And that is the kingdom of this world. Uh, he's the prince of this world, and we are delivered into uh, the, the kingdom of God. And so the two kingdom person draws a lot of hard, thick lines mm -hmm. between the world and the church and um, this is a popular theology of some Reformed people. You could probably tell as mm. I'm describing this what kind of church you go to or maybe <laughs> what kind of pastor you have because of how the world is talked about. Mm. Is the world a place we need to go and engage and listen and learn, or is the world a scary, evil, yeah. de uh, decrepit, um, dying place. Yeah, I, I, I think of the two words, iconoclasm and indigenization. This comes mm -hmm. from an article I read from Todd Billings, um, where he talks about gospel ministry in a new frontier culture. And he basically mm -hmm. makes the point that the gospel is going to iconoclastically destroy idols in that culture. Yeah. And it's so it's going to smash things. <laughs> it's going to come through and say, gonna, this is evil and yeah, wrong and rebuke. needs to be stopped, and you need to repent and turn to the Lord. Yep. But it's also going to indigenize things. So if there's a culture that, say, the men respect the women, maybe it's a tribe in Africa, and mm. um, a evangelist comes in and sees, 
wow, the men really respect the women very well in this culture. That's something that needs to be indigenized uh, and made, needs to be encouraged, but, mm-hmm. but it maybe does need to be reframed. I think always mm-hmm. the, in a non-Christian culture or place or group of people, even their good morality will need to be reframed and grounded in the gospel. And so I think that has to do a little bit with uh, with this two kingdoms. Uh, there's things that are bad in the world, and there's yeah. things that are um, that need to be avoided. So uh, with the two kingdom view, you would have uh, again some practical examples: some people who only listen to Christian music, yeah, um, yeah, somebody who would only watch Christian uh, Christian produced movies <laughs> or TV shows. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they they're. You know, in in our own context, Christian education being mm-hmm. a very, very important thing for the discipleship model that we follow in our own mm-hmm. church, and so a Christian school uh, mm-hmm. having a very uh, important place in again in our discipleship model. Right. That's a bit of a two kingdom um, approach to uh, to our world. Um, but I think that Zach and I are mm-hmm. both saying that we we neither of us want to get caught necessarily in either camp um, mm-hmm. but but we see the benefit of the teaching particularly of Abraham Kuyper himself that yeah. it is true that Christ rules over all there is common grace mm-hmm. there is that we can watch a movie and um, he, I think of you know the Matrix was such a popular movie for Christians to discuss when I was in high school and um, mm-hmm. that, you know, there's some interesting symbolism in the Matrix, and mm-hmm. there's some uh, some reframing of things of good and evil that's uh, kind of helpful for understanding mm-hmm. good and evil in the world. And it's not a Christian movie, Mm-mm. but uh, there's some Christian archetypes, you would say, in yeah. the film. And so we can learn something from that. There could be some common grace that the Lord could use to apply that to our own understanding. And so we wouldn't say mm-hmm. um, it's necessarily just write it off because it wasn't made by a Christian author or, uh, or, or director. Um, but um, uh, neither would we want to say, you know, the, I mean, the, an extreme example is like, let's find the gospel in Game of Thrones. And, mm-hmm. and so that, that's a little bit of, of the hyper-Kyperian approach where common grace must apply so I can watch this show with um, tons of nudity and uh, um, violence and uh, I don't know if there's I've never seen Game of Thrones but I've, I've heard I've, <laughs> I've read articles about the content of it and it is uh, very rough stuff you might mm-hmm. say um, ethically and so um, John Piper yeah. once had a really good answer yeah. to a question I think he said can I watch Game of Thrones was the question that was posed yeah. to him and he mm-hmm. said uh, the Christian should be able to say no to something. Yeah, at what point do you say <laughs> at, no? At, we have to draw, like, if, if that is something that, you know, we, we think is just fine, well, then what would we say no to? Mm-hmm. Um, the Kyperian would almost, uh, the, the hyper-Kyperian would almost say, right. we, we wouldn't say no to anything because common grace could teach us something. Mm-hmm. Um, and you even see this in uh, in some some very... Uh, mainline approaches to media that it's just like, Mm -hmm. it's all good and we can learn something. Um, And so anyways, uh, the two kingdom view also would fall into the danger of asceticism of removing ourselves from culture and failing to love our neighbor. 
And I would say that would be yeah. more likely the struggle that our own congregation or hmm. our context of sort of theologically hmm. conservative Reformed churches would fall into. Yeah, and it's interesting how these two contrasting views, really the two kingdoms and the Kyperian, however you slice the Kyperian, they have some broad similarities, which we can use here. Yeah, they do. It's interesting to see how their eschatological visions and therefore their programs for for uh, living in this world differ so bro- so so much, mm-hmm. so, so starkly. Mm-hmm. Um, so the two kingdoms view tends towards, and this is an oversimplification, of course, but it tends towards seeing Christianity, the main point of Christianity is getting people to heaven. Um, and this world is kind of just going to hell in a handbasket. Literally. One day almost. it's going to burn, God's going to get rid of the world, and we're going to be in heaven. <laughs> and so it's it's it tends towards a rescue paradigm where we're only rescuing souls, which you there's lots of see, truth to this. And you particularly see that with how people talk about the climate or the environment. Yeah, like we don't yeah. care about the environment or the climate because it's going to burn anyways. Yeah, you know, that's uh, Mark God. Driscoll once said, you know, I... It's all going to burn in the end, and so give me my SUV. You yeah. know, like, I, I don't care how much gas I go through. Yeah, and then there's the Kyperian system sees that working in this world is important because God is redeeming all things in Christ, and and so we are called to called to engage in the world and actually not just care about people's souls, but people's bodies as well. And here yeah. is one area where I'm, I'm more sympathetic, I would say, yeah. to this side of the divide, um, because we are trying to renew the, the world. We are here for the, for the betterment of people around us. Yes, for the church. Uh, it's, it seems to me that in Paul's letters, when, when he's talking about uh, taking care of the hurting and the oppressed and the poor... He's very clear about the emphasis being to those, especially in the church and the fellowship of believers, but also to the world at large. And so uh, the Kyperian has a sense of uh, the connection between this world and mm. the wor- the one after the this kingdom that of God, God is in renewing. The general sense, yeah. And so that's that's something to be, I think, commended in the Kyperian yeah. um, framework. Yeah, so... Herman Bavink really wrestled with this when he was going to college, and um, he noted that there is this stream of Christianity that uh, has so much emphasis on morals and on engagement with our neighbors and Mm -hmm. the political world and um, doing what is right and good for society. And then on the other side is this, um, this emphasis on eschatology, on where we're going, um, like, uh, the Apostle Paul writes, don't think on earthly things, but uh, think about what is in heaven, what is in store for you. You know, you're striving for this goal, not mm. that you've already achieved it, but um, you strive towards what is ahead, what is to come. And so um, in the end of, uh, while, while Bavink is going to college, he's wrestling with these things of, well, which way do I go? Which one do I, I go with? And he says, personally, I do not yet see any way of combining the two points of view, Hmm. but I do know that there is much that is excellent in both and that both contain undeniable truth. Yeah. And so um, it's an engagement with the kingdom of God. And of course, Jesus is the master in teaching these things because he uses the term, the kingdom of God, 
and the kingdom of heaven so often yeah. um, and does so in an expertly vague way where <laughs> you're not exactly sure if, sometimes if Jesus is referring to the kingdom of God as we experience it in the world or the kingdom of God as we will experience it in heaven forever. Hmm. And so um, we want, we pursue the kingdom of God. Yeah. We would say in the general sense. And we pray for it. And we pray for we it, pray his it kingdom come. to come here on earth as it is in heaven, which has hmm. an emphasis, of course, on both earth yeah. and heaven. Yeah. And so um, I think that's a good way of correcting this. Honestly, it's a, a very divisive thing in the Christian Reformed Church right now. You have those who are focused almost exclusively on what is happening now in the world, and so that bears itself out through political engagement becoming the mm-hmm. ultimate. Um, I would even go so far as to say political engagement being more important than the means of grace for many Christian Reformed people. Mm-hmm. So um, what you do in the world being more important than what happens in a church service is, is yeah. kind of how where the emphasis is placed by many people. And, and on the other side, you would have people who would really struggle to talk about <laughs> racial issues or to... Uh, to talk about any kind of um, political yeah. issue without feeling like they're betraying, uh, they're just being too worldly as, as we talk about these dirty, bad things that are just going to end up mm. all for naught anyways in the end. So um, there, there is, there are these two streams now in the Christian Reformed Church, and I think they're moving further apart, but what we need is more of an attitude of Bavink, who says there is much excellent in both because yeah. the Lord is concerned with his world and with also the salvation he gives us. Yeah, I think maybe one of my critiques for the Neo-Kyperian sort of movement is that it often thinks that in and of its own good and its own power, it can bring about the kingdom of God. Yeah, by they itself. build the kingdom. Yeah, would often say. And we could have a we should have an episode on this maybe later on. I'd love to hear your thoughts, Mark, more about how we don't build the kingdom because yeah, what verb do we use for what we do in the kingdom? Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's so huge. I should think about that more, but I think that there's almost sort of a I would say we they've confused the what the yeah. world sees as human flourishing, and they so they but they have this big idea of we need to bring human flourishing. But then their categories for what what qualifies as human flourishing are, as far as I can tell, absorbed merely from what the rest of the world says is good for human flourishing, which is, which is usually doing your doing what you want to do with your life, <laughs> actualizing yourself, uh, being authentic to yourself. Um, that that brings about good in your life, and therefore that's a good thing. Mm. And so the Kyperian or the Neo Kyperian, I often see almost encouraging this sort of way of life but without having any sort of declarative gospel to be brought to bear. And so that's one of the problems that I have uh, with, with neo-Kyperianism. Yeah, on either side, the sad thing is going to be that people will regret or avoid the Bible in some cases. And so, again, <laughs> yeah. you read earlier the call in first John two, do point. not love the world and the things of this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. There would be many people um, in our own Christian reform denomination who would say, I don't like that God said that mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. of their dogmatic devotion to engagement. Um, and uh, 
Now, of course, it should be unpacked and we should engage the world. But on the other side, um, you would have people who would sort of begrudge that the Lord says he cares for the oppressed and what happens to the oppressed in our world really matters a lot to God. And yeah. so um, you would almost have people saying, uh, like what Jesus says not to say, well, go wish them well and uh, with the, not give them a cold cup of water to drink. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so you're going to find within these streams people who are avoiding parts of Scripture. And I think at times we, yeah. every individual person listening to this podcast, myself included as I say these things, has to examine, is there anything in the Bible that I am avoiding? Mm-hmm. Um, because that is the standard for our theology and for our life. So. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's really good. There has to be that biblical balance that we need Absolutely. to find yeah. every time we think about things like this, because it's easy to fall to one side or the other. And I don't think either of us feel like we're the experts on whether or not neo-Kyperianism is, is good or bad. <laughs> um, there's Even as we were talking, I think we were both sort of just feeling like, wow, yeah, there's, there's a lot of smart pink people out there who are mm. talking about these things. Yeah. So... What would be maybe some recommendations you would have in ra- wrapping this up about the yeah. places to turn to well, think about such things? I would say um, it is important for the Reformed person, maybe this is a, a way of putting a closing parenthesis on the conversation on Reformed theology, is that I would say generally Reformed theology is more interested in the meta issues, the big issues. That's a good point. Uh, and the the... Soteriology, how does God work in the world? How does God hmm. act in saving sinners from, from death, from sin, from damnation and hell? Um, hmm. When we it, Traditionally, Reformed theology is interested in that question, hmm. um, and the outworking of it, of course, will be love for neighbor, but it starts with love for God. It starts with the glory of God. Yeah. Um, one of the correctives that I really appreciate, this came from a, a lecture that Professor John Bolt gave. Um, he was one of my systematic theology professors at Calvin Seminary. He is a, a great scholar of Hermann Bavinck. He noted that in the late 20th century in particular, there started to be all these developments of a theology of justice, a theology of gender, a theology of... Um, uh, climate change or, you know, environmentalism, um, a theology of uh, maybe just uh, ecclesiology or something even. And we can still see that and today. There's lots of books there, on this there, sort of stuff. And, and it's not a bad thing that people would want to say we need a theology of sure. blank because I even did a whole sermon series where mm-hmm. we looked at each of these things. However, mm-hmm. what can happen is people start to make a theology of gender their supra-theology or yeah. a, a theology of... Um, justice, especially, yeah. uh, to be essentially the only thing worth thinking about. And I would say a truly reformed person should make soteriology and theology proper yeah. um, the, the, the greatest interest, what we are really striving to communicate. Yeah. Who is God? What has he done? 
how is he how has he communicated that yeah. in scripture and as we said in the last episode that is the reformed yeah. emphasis yeah. and historically has been starting from the theology of god himself yes. and moving out to the other issues of theology whether that's the theology of gender or of the church or or whatever it may be yeah and so keeping the main thing the main thing the keeping the the true gospel as it's communicated in scripture at the center is a great mm-hmm. corrective for a lot of the problems that we've discussed actually in this episode. And yeah. and um, good Reformed theology will be systematic and will be covering those central points. So what are, yeah, what are the structure of Bavink's uh, systematic theology is uh, what is knowledge, what is the nature of God in his creation, in salvation, and in consummating his kingdom. I would say... Those are the big ones, and I th- mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure those are generally the four volumes of of the dog tr- of Reformed dogmatics, and that's what Calvin is interested in in the Institutes as well. And the outworking of that, of course, is a theology of sacraments and and all of the other things. But um, but a Reformed person should be interested in the biggest questions, um, asking essentially the right questions about yeah. the Bible, saying not just what does this inform me for how I should vote or what I should do today, but mostly approaching the Bible and asking, who is God and um, what has he done in this world? What has he done for me personally as his child? Yeah, and that's also really good because if you do it backwards, it can affect your doctrine of God. It can affect your doctrine of the Bible. It can affect your doctrine of salvation and what the gospel is all about. and so we, yeah, having those starting points and prioritizing our theology properly will, will in the long run be the healthiest for the church. So, yeah, we hope that this has been helpful for you guys as we think back about some of these other pieces of the Reformed tradition, uh, thinking particularly about sectarianism and where and how we draw the lines of what it means to be Reformed, but also about uh, reformed theology and the reformed traditions and engagement with the world. Uh, we would love to continue hearing from you guys. So if you have any th- thoughts or comments, please leave a, a review on our iTunes page or on our Podbean page. Uh, also, go ahead and subscribe, like, share it with your friends. We would love to keep this conversation going. Uh, we, we thank you guys for listening. Again, I'm Pastor Zach. Yeah, and I'm Pastor Mark. And we appreciate you guys stopping by. We ask that uh, you would continue following along as we go in the weeks ahead. All right, thanks, guys. See you guys.